Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transporter beam. Now. Okay, hello, welcome everyone to Star Trek from the Holodeck. This is the Discovery Edition, and I'm your host, Michael Flores, the captain of USS Rainman Digital. If you are new to our show, we cover a wide variety of Star Trek content, and you can find our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search from the Holodeck. Our preferred podcast provider is iTunes because we need everyone who's willing. And who wants us to keep doing shows to give us a rating on iTunes. Five-star rating, preferably. And a review, if you have time. But I'm very satisfied with just simply rating it. It takes about five seconds or less. Okay, Dave, how are you today? Doing good. I have my bowl of mashed potatoes ready to explain science to us all. Oh, awesome. Thank you. How about some gravy? (laughs) Gravy? (laughs) I don't know what the gravy is going to stand for, but that hopefully will be good gravy and not bad gravy. Yeah. Yes, please. All right. So the USS Janeway, Dave. Dude, that was actually really cool. I like that. I need that model of, I need that model of that ship ASAP. Of the Janeway? Yeah, I need it. Her name does make for a great ship because I was I was thinking about that. I'm like, well, does that work for uh, a name of a ship? And I would say, yes, it does. If it sounds like I'm trying to stall for time, it's because I am. I just messed (laughs) up on something on our video feed. Okay, here we go. But yeah, I feel like that makes for a good name of a starship. It, it does work because there are certain captains that I don't think would sound right for a starship. For example, USS Kirk. I don't think that has a ring to it, right? It's more USS Tiberius. It's, I think Tiberius that would, would work. work. That would work. USS Picard doesn't work. No. USS Cisco. Maybe that works. That maybe. kind of a little bit iffy. It's iffy. Uh, USS Nog, for example, they did that one. I, <laughs> that that's awesome. just a tribute because I don't think tribute. I don't think that sounds good either. Though it doesn't sound good, but I thought as a Star Trek fan, it was a cool thing. Yeah. Oh, definitely, I would agree with that. Now, I will say this one sounds good. USS Archer. Archer. That does sound good, but USS Janeway actually has a great ring to it and sounds it the best, in my opinion, out of all the the previous captains. And you know what, dude? I'm actually really happy. Do you realize we're seeing more? emphasis of trying to bring to light the last two captains that we've been introduced to in Janeway and Archer. We have the Archer spaceport. You have USS Janeway in this one. And there, it it feels good that I'm hoping that the new, uh, like the writing room in star, uh, star Trek right now yeah. is trying to bring to light, you know, enterprise and Voyager because they're not ignoring things. Yeah. Which wouldn't that feel a little insincere if a bunch of Star Trek writers were trying to ignore things that came from maybe a different creator, you know, Rick Berman, if you will, or Gene Roddenberry? It would feel I think it would be very transparent. We would see that they're purposely avoiding, avoiding certain it. things. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I like the fact that for me, it feels like just the last two years they've really brought forth that, hey, Enterprise and Voyager deserve to be also talked about just as well yeah. as Deep Space Nine, just as well as, you know, TNG and and the original series. Yeah. And plus it brings to light series that were overlooked by some, possibly again, knowing that Discovery is reaching a different audience as well. Hopefully this will lead people to wanting to check out those other shows as well. Yeah. And honestly, dude, I mean, through my rewatches, covering star trek for the past like like me and you have been at it for close to what eight years for what for for star trek yeah it's been Jesus. a it's been Don't a while say that please but yeah it's been a <laughs> but while through my rewatches i have to say you know like 
Voyager and Enterprise kind of actually have a nice newer sheen when I look at them now. Yeah. I used to hate when we first started, I hated Enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> but after rewatching it, I'm like, oh, you know what? The beginning didn't didn't match up well, but man, were they really on a roller coaster ride by the end of it. Yeah, for sure. I guess my only complaint about USS Janeway is that it was just a glimpse. We were not given a very great view of the ship, but I'm sure it's only a matter of time before we do see something more in depth. Honestly, I'm surprised that we have not been given an updated art of Star Trek discovery. Hold on a second. Yes. Golden girls is my ringtone. (laughs) Very unprofessional today. Jesus Christ. My phone's ringing. So, yeah, I, I'm surprised that we have not been given an updated Art of Star Trek Discovery book yet. You know, with being 900 plus years into the future, there's some there's so much that they could put into that book now because oh, yeah. they have one for the first season. And I believe they have one for the second season, but they have not released one yet for the third season. And that's the one I really want because they it's all futuristic yes. art design. And. And dude, they're still they're still lagging behind in a lot of like the 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 model makings that you know when they in Star Trek one of the biggest things that they're infamous for is releasing models of the ships. Yeah, yeah. I'm waiting for Discovery's models to come out because some of those ships could really look awesome in detail. Maybe there's not a market for it. You know, it seems like a lot of the merchandising for Star Trek has a lot to do with the classic era of Star Trek. Yeah. TOS gets a lot of different things made, uh, both the Kelvin as well as the original and then, or the prime. And then TNG is probably the runner up deep space nine. Good luck getting anything Voyager, anything Voyager. Good luck getting anything enterprise. I don't think anything was made for enterprise. (laughs) 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 Poor show, dude show. That show just does not deserve the hate that it got, dude. It doesn't. doesn't. That's why when, uh, when the actor that played, uh, oh, I don't even remember his name. Oh, the one, the one during Star Trek Day. Yeah, and he's all, "Come on, it's not that bad." <laughs> and he was like, "This is my crew." I'm like, "Yeah, you're right. That's your crew." Yeah, pride, man. Have some pride. <laughs> all right. So in this up, ep- the episode that we were going to be discussing, obviously, is Star Trek Discovery season four, episode five, "The Examples." So let's get into this. Uh, Overall, this was a rather straightforward episode that served to bring some context and flesh out some of the more important issues that have been introduced during the prior episodes. We got confirmation that the DMA is not a naturally occurring phenomenon because it can disappear and reappear seemingly at will or at at the behest of whoever is controlling it. Yes. And... I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I I got bad vibes of a cry of a child in, in, when they mentioned that. Oh, it's a controller. Someone's at the center of the anomaly. I'm like, no, no, please. It's just a child playing with a toy. <laughs> a super advanced civilization. You know, that's, that's what, all it is. That's what I'm hoping. Uh, dude, I got giddy when they started actually mentioning about like the big higher alien races yeah. out there. Yeah. Yes. I'm sure everyone knows. I probably jizzed in my pants when they mentioned the Q continuum. Yes. But, David, I know I was like, I, I rolled my eyes. <laughs> I was like, here we go. But honestly, I like actually when they brought the uh, one alien race, the gods from the, the original series. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, that'd be kind of cool if they brought or they brought the, the uh, Metrons, the Metrons, yeah. And I was like, well, they brought in the Guardian of Forever, so they could I, bring in the Metrons. I think the thing about Discovery at this point is nothing's off limits. Nothing's off limits because we're nine hundred plus years in the future. It has literally the entire history of Star Trek at its at its call, like at its beck and call. At any moment, it can it can go through that that Star Trek Rolodex and pretty much use and do whatever they want. That's the beautiful thing about this era that everything we, we know of Star Trek has passed. We're no longer stuck in the prequel eras where we, there's certain things we just can't do because we know that 
certain things like the Borg, for example, weren't introduced into the T until the TNG era. era. That's why when Enterprise did their Borg storyline, I was like, eh, okay, this isn't going to work out too well. <laughs> Let's see what happens. So yeah, Discovery has that unique ability to do all of that. So yes, David, you are right. That was an episode or an aspect of this episode that really activated my Trek nerd chills when they had Admiral Vance start running through the advanced species that yes. would pro- potentially have the type of technology that could in fact do something like this. And yeah, the exact species he mentioned were the Metrons, the Nassin, the Nassin, the Iconian Empire, and of course the Q Continuum, which I guarantee you, David, you were way too giddy when oh, yeah. they said that. Although, dude, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. No profits? Come on. Come on. David, <laughs> haven't you realized for some reason Kurtzman like stays away from Deep Space Nine, except for Quark? <laughs> except for Quark. That's it. <laughs> Honestly, I think it's because I would like to think he's smart enough to know that you cannot tackle Deep Space Nine in a simple, hey guys, remember this? <laughs> because with Cisco is the whole idea of the prophet. And that question mark on what happened there. So they have to be careful. But anyways, yes, Q continuum outside the callback for us old schoolers. There's got to be a story aspect at play when it comes to the continuum. Despite, of course, the obvious Q being in Picard's second season, Admiral Vance said something quite intriguing. There has been no contact with the continuum for 600 years. For 600 years. Now, yep. this is a big what the fuck because time is relative to them. It's fluid. Yes. So the question is, why would they never come to this time period when time has no meaning? But exactly. But they choose not to come here. You know, you know what? You know what I hated about that moment was the fact that now I feel I have to yeah. see Picard. Because yeah. do you think maybe some there's a story aspect in Picard and that possibly would, leads into this whole now, missing in action for 600 yes. years? Now I know that you would say you would you'd expect it in the that to happen in a better writing room right. for Picard, right? Right. But we 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 we've lost kind of faith in the writing room for st- in certain parts of Star Trek. In Picard, you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. But I'm gonna give the benefit of the doubt. I'm hoping, hope, Mike, that's the big word, hope, that we have a connection of that moment that Vance said, 600 years, to Picard. Because it yeah. would make, it makes the story more interesting because now, now the gravity of like Picard trying to fix what Q did makes sense. If, and then, if, if that's, if they are trying to make connections to Picard. Can you, can you imagine if, at the end of Picard, if the Q continuum, because there's more Q than just right. Q. Yeah. If the Q continuum make a big. Q is plural. Yeah. Make a big like statement in the very end where something they do to Q to maybe Q is taken off the board permanently. I don't know. It could be directly related to Picard, to Picard. or it could be related to something that they're going to do later on. Uh, and it can simply be world building, you know, something that we have been asking for, like how are things you know, working We're, in this era, where are these different civilizations? So if it's simply just to clue us in and kind of flesh out the new cosmology of, of Star Trek in this era, then it could be as simple as that. But it was very in your face. So it does make me ask the question, you know, is this a potential Star Trek universe story clue? The last we saw of Q besides the upcoming season two of Picard, he had found a way to procreate. Yes. Which he had hoped would resolve the civil war of the continuum. Yes. But other than that, we don't really know a whole lot after that. So tactically, there's 900 plus years that that we don't know anything of the continuum. But the fact that Vance said 600 years without any contact, that's quite a statement. So perhaps it will pan out in some way later down the road. Uh, Picard will no doubt expand on some ideas, but what does it mean for discovery? Yes. Is this that potential crossover aspect that we've been 
talking about and are also cautiously optimistic about that crossover. Yeah, I'm a little optimistic. It just depends. You're on a how little dis- optimistic. I'm a little optimistic because like Discovery has done a good job with their, in my opinion, their narrative right now, this season. Yeah. That if they were to take this season and connect it to Picard in some way and create that crossover event. Yeah. Just the way that they've been writing so far, I'm like, okay, let me see what you got. Mm-hmm. Because if they do tie the anomaly to Picard and basically, as I stated in a couple of episodes back, if they end with the anomaly, they, they face the anomaly, find out that it's Q and suddenly it just ends like the to be continued, what you would expect in Star Trek. And it continues on in Picard season two. Yeah. That could be cool. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this theoretical species that they're calling species 10 C, the 10C. ones that have the power to do something like this. What if they're the, the super AI? That too, because like, we don't know what happens to what happened to, uh, the to super AI, the super AI, except that they opened up a portal for half a second and then said, Oh, okay. So long. Yes. And that's the end of season one. And that's the end of season so, one. So maybe it's connected to that. There are a lot of possibilities. And honestly, I would be okay with it being the super AI species. Um, not as a way to fix Picard because every show needs to rely on its own story merits. But if they were to use that aspect as a way to flesh out the larger picture, the larger story of Star Trek as a whole, as a Star Trek universe, then that could be interesting. Well, the thing, the breadcrumbs for that too is actually interesting this past season because we've been seeing the computer AI of discovery starting to build up momentum Mm -hmm. because she's getting smarter. She's starting to have more personality and it could, it would be interesting to see that if they went that route of the, the, the artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. and tie it into discovery this is why she's getting smarter. This is, and it comes down to, uh, I think her name they gave her was Zora. 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 But uh, if they get, if, if they make Zora in the very end, one of the key elements to the season finale, that would be kind of cool too, because then you could tie it into uh, Calypso. Yeah. Because that is the biggest question that I feel that still has to be answered. Well, that, that can also be answered at the end of the series. At the end of the series. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting thought, Dave, about Zora, because, yeah, in this episode, they made it a point to show that she is becoming or possibly already truly sentient. And if that's the case, then we have one of the most powerful minds (laughs) on board Discovery, because you got to remember the ship's computer merged with the Red Sphere data and became a, a new entity. A new entity. And that Red Sphere was ancient. Yes. Ancient was so much knowledge. That was the whole point in season two when it came to that red sphere. It was about protecting that knowledge and also keeping it away from control. Because if control got a hold of that information, it would then destroy humanity. Not not just the humanity, it would destroy all sentient life. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. So who knows what's going to happen there, but you bring up a great point. Having Zora there as a intelligent life form, an artificial life form, essentially. And then if we go back to Picard's super AI, it would be an interesting way to kind of bring those elements together. But we'll see. I'm kind of burnt out on AI being (laughs) the enemy because we had it in season two, which was fine. And then we had it again in season three or of season one of Picard. Picard. Are you burnt out on it because of how it was handled the last time we saw it? I just think there are other enemies out there besides artificial life. I agree a hundred percent that there are other characters that the, or other species that they could tap in Star Trek to make their story, their narrative work. But you know, the low hanging fruit is the AI. Yeah. I, and maybe I'm just partial to more intimate portraits when it comes to villains. I feel like that's a missed art in Star Trek lately. Whereas it used to be Star Trek's bread and butter. How can we make our heroes stand out more? Well, let's have them 
in direct conflict with an enemy that essentially reflects their greatest fears or a potential obstacle to their destiny. That's what Star Trek for decades did best. Yes. And in this new era, one of my complaints, and it's not, it doesn't make my viewing of, of this new era of Star Trek any less enjoyable, but one of my complaints is that every enemy is just grand in scale. You know, that's why I liked the first season threat quite a bit. I, I didn't like all the, the fucking try hard twists and turns and <laughs> hey, guys, look what we're doing over here, not over here, what we're actually doing. I didn't like that because we wasted a lot of time trying to create distraction so they can then subvert our expectation. Exactly. And the first half of the season essentially amounts to just subversion. That's it. How can we trick the viewers into not knowing what's happening and the series really didn't get started until they went to the mirror universe. Yeah. So th- that was my complaint about season one, but at least we had Lorca and we had Giorgio and we had Burnham. And we, so we essentially had two threats. We had Giorgio from the mirror universe. We had Oscar Isaac's Lorca as another threat. And then we had the emotional ramifications of what this meant for Burnham. You know, that, I, I love that. And I really hope that we get back to that again, something a little more intimate and smaller in scale, because to me that makes way or makes room for much better storytelling in my opinion, rather than always going epic. Well, because like there's something to be said about it's great to have a story where the, the main characters just face obstacles and win the day, you know, like they, they, they try hard and they succeed in their task. Right. End of story. But there is something to be said about sometimes giving the obstacle something familiar mm-hmm. just makes the story pop more. Yeah. Like if you have a really good villain, you a really good villain could take a simple story and turn it into a great story. Yeah. Likewise, a very bad villain or badly written villain can destroy a well-written story. Well, look at Gal Dukat in Deep Space Nine. One of the exactly. best. I'm. I don't care if you hate Deep Space Nine. Shame on you if you do. But Gal Dukat is probably on the top three greatest Star Trek villains of all time. He really is. I would say number one is Khan, Khan. And I say that only because Khan is such an amazing movie. Wrath of Khan. The second one would probably be the Borg as a whole because of what it meant for Picard. Actually, dude, I would take Dukat over, over the Borg even because Dukat was so dynamic. I'm not going to argue with that because I mean, like partly Dukat's story, you actually think he might turn good. And then and you want him and to. You you're, want you're, him you're, to. Even when he makes bad decisions, you're rooting for you're him. Rooting you're like, for please, him. just you're you're gonna fix it. But you're in gonna, the <laughs> but in the end, just like any good villain, you have to understand he's the villain, and he becomes true evil. And he becomes true evil. Yeah. And when he became true evil, the uh, I think it was like a season. What was it? Seven or yeah, season six? Season six. When he became true evil, I thought that that okay. We're heading to the, the 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 end of the story because like you just had your big bad just confirm he is the big bad of the series of the entire series of the entire series. Yeah. And yeah. I would, uh, I'm gonna say something controversial. I'll take Ducat over the Borg because the Borg was cool, but the the Borg was just like a. It's essentially a giant plot device. A, a giant plot device for yeah, Picard, but it does work. But with Ducat. That was a that that was not a plot device for Cisco. Yeah. So bring it back to Star Trek Discovery. It would be nice if we can get those types of of characters being built into this show. Well, we got we might have gotten one introduced, uh, and I think I I love this character is Tarka. Okay. All right. Let's get into that because yes, I I would agree with you. He something's not right with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and and maybe it was just about the quirk, you know, we all love those characters that are bizarre nowadays. A lot of us are drawn to that. In fact, actors are drawn to those types of char- types of characters nowadays because it gives them the most meat to work with, you know, the performances. So through the introduction of this character, Tarka, some light was shed on a few things pertaining to the DMA 
After elaborate testing, the crew determined that in order to control phenomenon of this magnitude, it would require technology so far beyond them that it terrified them. Now, what did they say um, the actual tech would have to have something as powerful as a hyper giant? Is that what it was? A hyper giant star? A hyper giant star. In order to control something like this. Yeah. Now, I like Tarka quite a bit. He's the type of character that has staying power, in my opinion. He was unique and quirky, played by Sean Doyle, who is grossly underrated as an actor. Yeah. Like, he is so good. He is in so many things that people probably don't even remember he was in. And every time he plays a role, he plays that role very, very well. So I just don't know what they're going to do with him. I'm hoping this isn't a one-off. But he didn't come off completely uh, the word isn't innocent but that's the word that comes to mind every time i think of him he didn't seem completely on the up and up like he was slightly off uh he was also arrogant which i liked i like characters like that when he said you may not like me but i love me <laughs> exactly so i'm not gonna do anything that's gonna kill us <laughs> I lo- that, and that's the thing it's kind of like I kept thinking to myself, okay, is Tarka going to be a villain or is he going to be that character? He's right now, he's right now in that gray area where you have Dukat. What if he isn't, isn't a villain necessarily like right now, but because of this technology and this DMA, what if he tries to somehow manipulate it, get it under control so he can use it for whatever reason. And let's say his reasons aren't necessarily nefarious. Yeah. Just, Hey, it's just too much power for one man to have. And by that alone, that decision alone, he becomes a threat. Well, you get a big outlook into his personality when he's talking with book and you can tell that basically Tarka has, is that borderline like Dr. Frankenstein. He he looks at the anomaly as something that is curious to him. He needs to know. Right. And and that's the thing I took away from the character by the end when you ended, uh, ended it with that conversation between him and Book was like Tarka is almost borderline obsessed with this anomaly, not because he wants to control the anomaly, but because he wants to know how it works. Yeah, and that's sometimes more dangerous. And yeah, and that's that's that Dr. Frankenstein trope. Yeah. And I think that basically if they continue on that road, Tarka could be really interesting because we could be rooting for him, rooting for him, much like in the story of Frankenstein. But at the end of the day, Frankenstein is the monster. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein ends up being the villain in the book because he he created the monster. Yeah. And if you think about it, it'd be really interesting to see Tarka so obsessed in it and they do like this kind of like Dr. Frankenstein story that his obsession has something to maybe do with the anomaly. Yeah, I can see that. And also there was a disruption of harmony whenever he was around because (laughs) we had that scene with Saru where he just yells at Saru and tells him to yell and Saru does it. So what is Tarka's point here? What is he trying to do? What was the reason the writers chose to have Tarka do that with Saru? Also the conversation with book at the end, anger being a powerful motivator Motivator. and Tarka looked not happy, but somewhat pleased. It could be a narrative plant, just something that, you know, essentially putting a pen in it and going back later, but everything they did with him did not seem overt. Seemed like there was something just below the surface that was trying to be set in motion. Yeah. And it it was like they were trying to set the set the table that yeah. for 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 the crew because like up to this point, yes the discovery crew has been faced with obstacles, but they haven't been faced with this type of turmoil that Tarka brings to the, to the ship because I like the fact I'd say just disharmony, this disharmony. Yeah. Because there's something to be said about like how a lot of, a lot of detractors of discovery have basically stated 
the whole thing that irritates a lot of people about discovery is the power of science will win the day. Yes. That's cool. That's really nice. But having a character like Tarka come in and that mashed potato scenes dude was funny. Yeah. Because essentially you had at that Saru and Stamets doing the d- typical discovery techno babble. Mm-hmm. And Tarka just comes out of nowhere and basically says, mashed potatoes, pee. This is how it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> I like that because he said, what did he say? He said, um, we can sit around doing math. Math. Yeah. Or get our hands dirty. And that felt a lot like something Scotty would say. Exactly. Scotty would never talk about math and do math. He's just going to get his, he's an old school grease monkey, old school mechanic, just getting in there and using his hands. And that's why I say I get the the vibe of Ducat from this character because like, it's like, okay, it's cool that he brings this turmoil in, but it, it's just that he's also bringing in this turmoil. So do you remember the mood change every time to call was on board? Yes. Every time there was every a disharmony time. there, it was just, it was off. There was, everyone was uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe they do have some, a plan with him. I would probably just shrug and say, he's just a, you know, it's just Sean Doyle being Sean Doyle as an actor doing what he can with a role. But then you had those lines at the end with book. And it seems like Book might end up going down a dangerous and possibly unethical path. His emotions are erratic and his grief is transitioning into another stage of the grieving process. And that would be anger. Anger. He's now being filled with that rage. Yes. So the aspect of Tarka and Book doesn't make a whole lot of sense right now to have them even communicate with each other. But hey, listen, obviously there is intent there. There's some intention to do something between the two of them, and we'll see what it is soon, hopefully. So the angle with the species 10C plays well with some of the other themes that were at work in this episode, specifically when, specifically when you take a look at the Culbert parts. He's living with fear and uncertainty, and that's the general consensus with most of the other crew members as well. Also, they're using Culbert's resurrection Uh, In this scenario as well, posing those questions about his survival and that question, why me? Why did he survive? There must be a reason or a purpose. And if there's not, then your very existence is what did uh, not Cochran Kovic say um, that your very existence is a middle finger to everyone who lost Lost someone. someone. Yeah. So now we have Colbert feeling those issues of purpose like Tilly adding more to my thoughts on a type of existentialism that appears to be at play this season. And that's something that we've been talking about now since, since I want to say our first episode discussion for season four, that the themes of purpose and existentialism is at the forefront and it continues to be a part of this show. And I will say David that even though discovery since day one has messed around with themes This season seems to be the most consistent in its messaging when you're looking at the thematics because thematics. Yes. Yes. When it comes to thematics, because the idea of purpose and existentialism keeps coming into play. Yeah. So I think at this point, five episodes in, it's probably the most consistent thematic element that discovery has continued to use through numerous episodes. Oh yeah. And the cool thing too, is they've done it. They do each time they do it, they they touch on this thematic element, this particular one, about like finding purpose, purpose and self, uh, you know, trying to find self-worth. They do it differently for each character that makes it feel so natural. And that's why also this particular scene with Kovic was one of the, one of the most awesome scenes too because i love the fact that kovich looked at Culber and just randomly said you have about i think he said like you have eight minutes or something to, to tell me what you want to say later <laughs> and it's later and it's like i love him thank you you're he- creating you're creating that turmoil between these two characters but in this regard kovich is not doing it you know maliciously he this is just who kovich is is he a vulcan because he has no emotion <laughs> Yeah. I have no, I, I'm, what I want to say he's an Android. dude. That's what I was about to say. What if he's an Android? What if he's an Android? I think he's an Android because like the way he deals with things what really is, what reminds me from? of early data. 
What if he's from the Dr. Soong's planet? From Picard. <laughs> he's actually one of the offspring. That, let's not. Oh, God, no. And he, and he was created <laughs> through the power of imagination. The power of imagination. <laughs> I was about to say, this is this is uh, Inigo's, uh, Soong's no. imagination. Please, no. No, th- <laughs> no thank you. Yeah, I I like the whole aspect with Kovic, I, I think. And Colbert. I love Colbert, dude. I uh, thank you, Colbert, for smacking Stamets into place as well. <laughs> He's all like, dude, just calm down. Yeah. He's all like, relax. Worry about something else. There's more at stake than your own personal feelings. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> Holy shit, they read my mind. But you know what was awesome about that too? That to me. Okay, you got brownie points for for me in this episode trying to reestablish Colbert and Stamets as a couple. Yeah. Because to me, that is a that that is the quote unquote alpha of the relationship telling the beta sit down. <laughs> oh yeah, we know Colbert's the is the alpha in that relationship. Oh, Colbert's he ain't the playing alpha. he ain't playing second fiddle to no one. No, no. Stamets is Stamets is definitely he's, the beta. He's just lucky to be there. <laughs> and when he looks at Colbert, he just can't believe his luck. Stamets is like going, I don't know what I've done, but thank you for not leaving me. That's why he cried so much when he died. Oh no! No! <laughs> oh my god yeah how am i ever gonna get someone you're this right. attractive yes you're right i mean you look are at absolutely me right look at him because i'm sorry anyone who anyone who's That's been so in a relationship up. and been the beta definitely can can relate to that it's like no i will fight i will bring him back from the dead it's <laughs> <laughs> true it was his only chance <laughs> yeah so the existential aspect and how a lot of people are losing purpose. It reminds me a bit of the turn of the century, not the recent century, of course, the turn of the 19th century, I believe when technology started coming out more and people started to understand science. And when that happened, a lot of people lost themselves in the late 1800s And it reflected a lot in literature. For example, Lovecraft himself, a lot of his stories was built around the idea that we're insignificant because for centuries, we always thought we were the center of the universe, that we were the purpose of everything, that we were the most privileged and most important aspects of the entire universe. And once we started studying science and we realized that we are kind of insignificant and we represent a very small portion of a larger universe, a lot of people started slipping into a type of existentialism. And that also happened with some of the greatest writers, you know, the Russian writer, Leo, uh, Leo Tolstoy, same yeah. thing. He was a philosopher and also a novelist. And those are just two examples out of hundreds of writers that were inspired by this feeling that took over the academic and intellectual circles because of the rise and understanding of science. Science shed had shed so much light on the mysteries of the world that there was nothing left there. That's also the same time people started losing faith in religion and God because it was replaced with, with the notions of science. So this whole thing with the discovery crew traveling a thousand years into future almost feels like that. It feels like, are we even important anymore? Look at all these things that have happened we keep risking our lives and saving the universe for what? Are we even important at the end of all this? Because here we are again trying to fight for our lives against this entity of some kind that's controlling a fucking wormhole. Yeah. It does feel like they're pulling from some of those um, inspirations when it comes to the core problems of our Discovery crew this season. Oh, absolutely. And it all started with Tilly. When Tilly questioned, brought up that question to Saru, and then we saw what happened. Tilly left well, because do, she do had you, to find her purpose. Do you think? Imagine traveling a thousand years into the future. You realistically, we would be completely lost. Oh, absolutely! It would be a complete culture shock. Even in the ways of technology, let's say you're an advanced society. Would you really? F- 
feel like you know anything? Would you have an edge over anyone exactly. who's a thousand years advanced? So it would make sense for a lot of these elements to come into play. And honestly, I, I really hope they would, they would bring that, those aspects a little more into the show. The idea that they're a thousand years behind. Well, that's the thing. I mean, even last season, they kind of brought up that element when they dealt with technology. Yeah. And that those were the shining moments of last season. And I really wanted them to continue that trend to kind of show, hey, this crew just traveled like a couple thousand years into the future. They're going to be like, you know, take the fish out of water statement and basically make that even worse. They're worse than the fish out of water. Yeah. They, they don't have a purpose here because they're not going to understand anything that has happened that within the last thousand years. And I'm sorry, anyone who thinks that if I get dropped uh, like 50 years into the future, I'll be fine. No, that's not how this works. If it, I guarantee you, if you took someone 50 years ago and brought them into today's world, they would be homeless. Yeah. They'd be homeless and, and pretty much scared out of their mind. Well, just imagine where we would be in our own world. The a thousand years ago, it would put us at the year 1021. <laughs> imagine if we were transported until now, we, we, we grew up in 1021 and we got transported to 2021. 2021. We would be completely lost. So I, I'm I'm thinking part of that existentialism and, and lack of purpose is coming from that. But it does need to be brought a little, uh, I want to say brought to the foreground a bit more with the writing. Because you are right. They did allude to that type of stuff a bit last season. But this is, but but in this particular season, we're starting to see the, the quote unquote, the seeds start bloom uh, growing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope they go in that direction. I hope I really do. Because like, dude, that's been the shining statement of this whole season is bringing it all back together and basically showing that the crew, while they're, they're all happy and they're, you know, they're now lieutenants, you know, they have this nice shiny new ship. There's a nice shiny new ship waiting for them in the future. They are way behind with everybody. They should be lost. They should be absolutely confused and scared out of their mind. What the hell has gone on for the last thousand years? Well, that's why when they mentioned the Q continuum, I was like, well, do you guys even know what that is? I'm assuming they, they got the, the highlights. Like they put them in a room and said, all right, guys, sit here for an hour and we're going to go through the highlights of history. Imagine, imagine that too. Being told, hey, in the last thousand years, we've had, you know, Q continuum. We've had the Borg almost eliminate Earth. Yeah. What's the Borg? Oh, uh, here thousand. you go. Oh, here you go. Here's there, some reading materials. There's some, there's some nightmare fuel for you for the next couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let's move on. The prisoners, uh, I'm not quite sure what they were doing with that part. Okay. It, it seemed to be more about moving Book into whatever position they will need him in in a later episode because the prisoner scene felt strategic and purposeful and a lot of attention was placed on it. And for the writers to do something like that in a series like Discovery, it's... It's got to be used as character motivation or possibly foreshadowing because there was a lot of emphasis being put on choice, agency, and ethics as it pertained to the prisoners. So it would make sense if this were to feed into something Book will be confronted with later in the season. Otherwise, you look back at the prisoner sequence and you just shrug and wonder why we spent so much time there. And see, this is this is the one point in the episode. Now, now that we've talked about the uh, I've uh, I've mentioned about the stuff that I like. Mm -hmm. This is the part where I was left confused with and very conflicted with the episode because this is this is story A. Mm -hmm. This is the main story. This is Burnham's story. And by the end of it, I was I was really confounded with the. I want to make sure that I say this right, but the character choices that they decided to go through mm -hmm. because it seems so. It 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 seems so detrimental to the character growth that they've already had for Burnham because we started the whole season with Burnham being taught the Kobayashi Maru test 
and the whole lesson of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Here, it ends with Burnham choosing again the needs of the few over the needs of the many. And I'm like going, all right, Burnham, you haven't learned jack shit the whole time. Now, okay, so this is why I, I disagree with you. Um, I get where you're coming from because the scene did feel weird. That whole part it fell off, but I don't necessarily agree with your interpretation of it because to me, I felt like Burnham made the right decision and I actually liked what they did with her because I feel like it was the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. That's why the rest of the ship was out evacuating everyone else and just her and book went to go rescue the prisoners. So, I don't think Burnham made a bad decision. I feel like she made a, a very Starfleet captain type of decision, mm -hmm. you know, um, giving people the, the right to, to choose their fate within reason. At the same time, she didn't want to leave people to, to die when she, after she witnessed the unethical situation, treatment. treatment, there we go. Treatment of the prisoners. It made her question any, potential resolve she might have had when let me find the way to reward this as well because now i'm struggling i feel like the way it was done and set up it was off putting it uh messed up the flow of the episode a bit just because it felt like we put a lot of un needed attention on a group of prisoners yeah now if that scene matters down the road for example the character of felix was very good it was a great scene it was a good scene and i did a like i did like it but upon reflection and breaking it down you do wonder why we spent so much time on a guy that murdered someone wanted to pay for his debts and then giving this holographic family tree back to the rightful person, which also didn't make a lot of sense because if he had that for 30 years, why didn't he just tell the magistrate or any other prison, prison guard, guard, would you please give this back to the, the next of kin? Exactly. That part, it seems very contrived. But when you do things like that in a writing room, it's usually because they're trying to shove in something for later. Mm -hmm. So the re what, what I got from that entire scene was that this will matter either down the road or it's less about the prisoner and more about book, which is what I am leaning towards because book was very upset with the decision to leave him behind for yeah for reasons of, you know, because he wanted to, he wanted Burnham to force him to come back with them. And that would actually be against Starfleet. Yeah. You don't force people against their will. And that was the thing too, because like, I kept thinking to myself, wait a minute, Burnham, these six, when they first meet them, these six actually choose, Hey, no, we want to stay. Yes. We choose to stay but here. Why did they choose to stay? They chose to stay because if it meant them just going back to another prison where they would be treated unfairly and unjustly, then they'd rather just die here. But if you can review our sentences and our cases and give us a fair trial, a just trial, then we will come back with you. So I, under I understood that. That was fine. Again, I just think the entire, I feel like you are right that something's off. Something was but off. But I do think that your interpretation of what's off, I don't necessarily agree with that yeah. because I liked what they did, but it does make me question why because we spent a lot of time on it. And that's what I had in the end was like in the end when I was actually, I watched it about like the third time, third or fourth time. And I'm like going, this ending. I cannot wrap my head around it because it's kind of like it brings up way too many questions and I'm like going, it has to be about book, dude. It has to be about book or just like what you said, I kept thinking to myself, unless they make this whole Felix thing matter for something. Yeah. It, it <laughs> what felt was the whole point. It, it felt weird, but that ending with book and Tarka, that, that was the, that was only saving grace. Yeah. The ending with Tarka and book, 
helped helped me with those scenes because then I realized, okay, well, this isn't really about them. It's about the motivation that we will need in order to push book into the next stage of his story. And I don't think it's going to end well for him. I honestly feel like he is far gone. He has lost way too much and he is going to slip into the comfort zone of anger. Yes. And I think that's the whole right now. The story of book is I completely understood why book was upset that Burnham left, left that guy behind. Right. I, I understand that books part. I, I, I totally dig mm-hmm. because like it's a continuation of book de- still dealing with the grief of losing his entire, not just his family, yeah, his entire planet, yeah, his civilization, his entire civilization his connection, especially, especially that scene when he, uh, well, imagine what he's going through because his species is connected to their planet, to the planet. But remember that one scene when he, it was the Beatles, the mind Beatles. Yeah. And like book literally could connect. Uh, uh, could, uh, he had like, he couldn't connect. He with couldn't them. connect with them because they weren't alive. Yeah. Yeah. And like, but it reminded him of that, that feeling he had with his planet. Yeah. And I really dig the fact that, the whole story arc of book has been really interesting. The only thing that I'm kind of like hemming and hawing about is Burnham. Because I, I don't like understand a, that. I don't, but explain it. Sell me on it a little bit better. Cause I don't agree with you about the needs of the many. Cause I, I see the complete opposite, but because talk I mean, it out a bit. Let me see if I can the get way behind the, what you're saying. The way the whole series starts with Burnham is she has to learn to earn that seat. Right. We've said that from the right. get go. So she's being taught the atypical principles, Kobayashi Maru, the no win situation. You're going to be put in it. Right. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. The whole episode, this, this continuation from the last one is Burnham is trying to bring all these races together for the Federation. Mm-hmm. And she's brought up with this one race that she does not agree with ethically. She doesn't agree ethically. But at the end of the day, they have to be able to join the Federation. They have to make that concession. Or at least um, give a proper understanding. Representation, representation. Of, of Starfleet. Yeah, and yeah. earning people's trust back. And yeah. I'm like going, in my opinion, she did the exact opposite. She didn't earn anybody's anybody's trust by the end of it because, number one, she, while we, I, I do not like the magistrate, Still telling the magistrate, hey, you're a refugee just like them too. That's kind of a, that's a terrible thing to say as a captain. I think she was putting a tyrant in place, in his place. Like, see, and that's why I disagree. And I'll tell you, let me rebuttal to that now, now that I understand a little bit more. And then you can continue on. Yeah. So the way I looked at that scene was it was her standing her ground. She was looking at the guy and saying, listen, we respect your ways. We respect your customs. But one thing we will not stand behind is the mistreatment of of individuals. That's something that Starfleet typically doesn't involve themselves in at times because of the prime directive. Yes. Now, y- you could say, you could invoke the prime directive and say, well, she kind of went against the prime directive because we don't, uh, the Starfleet does not interfere with the interworkings of a culture. Yeah. So you can, you can use that as a, as a reason for your complaint. However, once the prisoners asked for help, it no longer becomes a issue of the prime directive and it becomes an issue of asylum. And that's the reason why I, okay. I, I that, that makes more sense to me then if they asked for help right now, if the prisoners are like, no, this is how we should die. This is how we must die. And the, magistrate what was the name of that species the achilles i think it was the achilles i think let me look at it real fast give me a second but that's i think that's the thing that is so strange uh, that's kind of do you get what i'm saying though oh absolutely now that you put it in that regard okay because the automatic thing that i was gonna rebuttal back was the prime directive Mm mm-hmm she can't go against the prime directive. And essentially in this episode, to me, she went against the prime directive. Now, if she would have forced Felix. Exactly. That would have been in violation of the prime directive. 
that's something Book doesn't understand. Book doesn't understand the Starfleet way. And I have a feeling that's what he is going to end up doing. He's going to end up turning on the ideology of Starfleet, of Starfleet and the Federation. Because what's, what if you can save a planet like his, but the prime directive doesn't allow it for doesn't whatever reason? I think oh, that's going to be a yeah. turning point for Book. And that could be a really cool scene. And I'm wondering if that's what they're trying to do with this entire thing. Trying to make it an ideological issue as opposed to a physical confrontation. So if they were to take Book and Burnham and put them on, on opposite sides of an issue without turning into some really heavy-handed melodrama, yeah, it could really work to create some issues uh, and some interesting issues in the way of story. And it's the proper way of doing a philosophical story like that. It absolutely is. I would agree 100%. So... It seems like we have issues in the same area, but our interpretations are slightly, are different. Are slightly off. Yeah, They're different. Yeah. So this does bring us to the end of our discussion. I believe the only thing we didn't get into is the lack of Tilly. Oh, yeah. There was no Tilly in this episode, which is very surprising because I want to say she's been in every single episode since episode three of Star Trek Discovery starting in season one. And I, I believe in the, the, in our pre-show, we did mention that basically about the Starfleet Academy series. So yeah. it would make sense that Tilly is probably not going to be in Discovery that much. Yeah. She might actually end up leaving the show and be brought to Starfleet Academy, which I'm, I am on record saying that I am okay with that. Yeah. If I could see a series with Tilly and Kovic leading Starfleet Academy, I can be happy. <laughs> yeah. And if people aren't aware, they did announce very casually. It was in an interview and Kurtzman had mentioned that they are working <laughs> yeah. with the idea of a Star Trek Starfleet Academy series. And if this is their way into that. By having Tilly be a part of that, that actually works for me. I'm actually okay with that. At first, I didn't want Tilly to leave Discovery, but if she's leaving Discovery just to go be the lead in her own series, that could be quite interesting. And think about it, dude. The, the, right now, Star Trek needs more series. Does it, though? I honestly think it does. I mean, I'm not I against mean, it, but... If, we're, if, if Star Trek is going to grow, they have to bring out... They have to... It has to be that same magic that they had when they had TNG, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager going back to back. And bringing in another series that could be paired up with Discovery. Technically, they're already past that. Because they have we have Lower Decks, we have Discovery, we have Prodigy, we have Picard, and we have Stranger Things. But the problem is... Three of those series do not connect to Discovery. You have to say that because like yeah. at least TNG, TNG, Deep Space Nine and Voyager can actually intertwine with each and other. And work with each other. And yeah. work with each other. The shows currently right now, they can't do that. Oh, yes, they can. They can <laughs> use Q in Picard season two to bring uh, everyone together. I, I don't want to think about that because that might ruin my Q. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's get into our, you know what? Our, our thoughts are pretty much out there. We don't need to do final thoughts, but how about our RMD scores? Dave, go ahead. Uh, my RMD score for this one, uh, it's, it is a dip. I will tell people that. that you best. I, I like the episode, but as I said, that ending just uh, it made me feel weird. It yeah. was like I was very conflicted about it, and it got down to a 75. 75? How dare you? Oh, remember, that's a big dip from the last episode. The last episode was, I think... We scored it in the nineties. I want to say. Yeah, it was. Um, I got. A, I gave it a ninety six. You gave it a ninety two. Yeah. Which, by the way, IMDb, it's now almost at a three. So I, I don't. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't know that. I don't, I don't, I don't understand. I don't know what they're seeing. Now watch. All of a sudden, next the next time we're in, we should look at the score for this episode. It's a hundred. It's a. It's such a good episode. <laughs> How? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna give this episode. Okay, David, you, I, I have a bone to pick with you. <laughs> Episode two was pretty bad. We had yes. problems with it. And you gave that one a 75. This episode is better than episode two. But I'm not, you don't change it now, but I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And well, in hindsight, I would actually give episode two a lower score. Okay, that, that makes it a little better. In okay. hindsight, I would give it a lower score because episode two was just 
Yeah. Let's let's forget about episode two. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm gonna give this episode an 86. percent I did not hate it. I thought it was strong. A strong installment into the season. There were a few aspects that did leave me scratching my head, not because it was bad, but I did question its purpose. Yeah. And that's also the, the issues you run up against many times with a serial. You know, sometimes you grade an episode unfairly because of something that was included and the answer comes later. Oh, on so, a side note, if I can mention this, because we haven't talked about it as much. I am really happy with Michelle Paradise's, you know, show running at this point because since the beginning, she's been saying she wants to bring that old vibe of a Star Trek TV show. And in my opinion, she is. Yeah. She's succeeding. I I have no problem with the writing this year. Our problems with this new era of Star Trek always comes at the end. (laughs) I know. Yeah. So that's why I'm very uh, cautiously optimistic about this season. So far, I'm fine with it. I think it's. You know, it's working for me. So, all right. Well, this does bring us to the end of our discussion. Remember, we do have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash Rainman Digital. When you pledge $5 or more a month, you'll gain access to all of our behind the scenes content where we do a bunch of pre-shows and we get into Star Trek news, Star Trek topics a little more casually than we do on these regular shows. Also, we have full discussions available, hundreds of shows available the moment you subscribe, we do discussions on all types of things, reviews on books, comics, topical discussions. So please go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Rain Man Digital. Also, if there's something you want us to cover starting next year when we get back from our holiday break, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter, send me a message on YouTube, wherever, and let us know if there's something specific you'd like to like us to cover or talk about. Thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain. It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.